Chapter forty two of Norse Pole Voyages by Zaharia A. Mudge. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter forty two The Last of the Polaris. Those left on board of the Polaris were oppressed with fears, both for themselves and those on the floe. The leak in the ship was serious, and the water was gaining in the hold and threatened to reach and put out the fires, and thus render the engine useless. Besides, the deck-pumps were frozen up, and only two lower ones could be used. But just before it was too late, hot water was procured from the boiler, and poured in buckets full into the deck-pumps, and they were thawed out. The men then worked at the pumps with an energy inspired by imminent danger of death. They had already been desperately at work for six unbroken hours, and ere long the fight for life was on the verge of failure. Just then came to the fainting men the shout, Steam's up! and tireless steam came to the rescue of weary muscles. As the dim light of the morning of October 16th dawned on the anxious watchers, they saw that they had been forced by the violent wind out of Baffin Bay into Smith's Sound. Not until now, since the hour of separation, had they counted their divided company. The assistant navigator, the meteorologist, all the Eskimo and six seamen were missing. Part of the dogs had also gone with the flow party. Fourteen men remained, including the commander and the mate, the surgeon and the chaplain. Men were sent to the masthead to look for the missing ones, but the most careful gaze with the best glass failed to discern them. Hope of their safety was inspired by the fact that they had all the boats, even to the little scow, yet it was not certainly known that the boats had not been sunk or drifted off in the darkness, and thus lost to them. So all was tantalizing uncertainty." An examination revealed the encouraging fact that a good supply of fuel and provisions remained on board. A breeze sprung up at noon by whose aid the Polaris was run eastward, through a fortunate lead, as near to the land as possible. Here lines were carried out on the floe and made fast to the hummocks, all the anchors having been lost. She lay near the shore and grounded at low water. An examination showed that the vessel was so battered and leaky that surprise was excited that she had not gone down before reaching the shore. It was decided at once that she could not be made to float longer. The steam pumps were stopped, the water filled her hold, and decided her fate. The sheltered place into which the Polaris had by divine guidance entered was Lifeboat Co., only a little north of Itah Bay, every mile of which we have surveyed in former visits. The famous city of Itah, with its two huts, was not far away, but out of it and its vicinity had come timely blessings to other winter-bound explorers. Our party at once commenced to carry ashore the provisions, clothing, ammunition, and all such articles from the vessel as might make them comfortable. The spars, sails, and some of the heavy woodwork of the cabin were used in erecting a house. When done, their building was quite commodious, 
being twenty-two feet by fourteen. The sails aided in making the roof, which proved to be watertight, and the snow thrown up against the sides made it warm. Within, it was one room for all, and for all purposes. Bunks were made against the sides for each of the fourteen men. A stove with cooking utensils was brought from the ship and set up. Lamps were suspended about the room, and a table with other convenience from the cabin were put in order. But before this was done, a party of Eskimo with five sledges made their appearance. They stopped at a distance and signified their friendly purpose by their customary wild gesticulations and antics. The white men at first took them for the flow party, and raised three rousing cheers to welcome. We doubt not, though it is not stated, that they were led on by our special friend Kalutuna. The surly Sipso, it will be remembered, had received what he had sought to give to another, a harpoon planted in the back, and was dead. Though there was left none to rival Kalutuna, Miyok, the boy that was in Cain's day, was reported as an old man now. Eskimo grow old rapidly. The whole party went to work with a will, having pleasant visions before them, of a new stock of needles, knives, and other white man treasures. They clambered over the hummocky floe, bringing loads of coal from the ship, and with their sleds brought fresh water ice for the melting apparatus. Several families finally came, built their huts near the vessel, and spent the winter. The shipwrecked whites had nearly worn out their fur suits, and their supply had been greatly reduced by the losses on the floe. So the Eskimo replenished their stock, and their women repaired the worn ones. Thus God makes the humblest and the weakest able at times to render essential help to the strong, and none need be useless. The winter wore off. There was no starvation, nor even short rations. The coal burned cheerfully in the stove until February, and then fuel, torn from the Polaris, supplied its place. The friendly natives brought fresh walrus meat, and scurvy was kept away. For all their valuable services, the Eskimo felt well repaid in the coveted treasures which were given them. The time during the sunless days was passed in reading, writing, amusements, and discussions, according to the taste and inclination of each. Of course, there were some daily domestic duties to be done. The scientific men pursued their inquiries, so far as circumstances allowed. The dismal story which has so often pained our ears concerning the Eskimo was true of them generally during the winter. They were suffering with cold and hunger, and three, one of whom was Miyok, died. The explorers returned the Eskimo kindness by sharing with them, in a measure, their own stock of provisions. The spring came, and with it successful hunting. One deer was shot, and some hares caught. Chester the mate, who seems to have been the Yankee of the party, planned and assisted the carpenter in building two boats. The material was wrenched from the Polaris. They were each twenty-five feet long and five feet wide, square, fore and aft, capable of carrying, equally divided between them, the fourteen men, two months' provisions, and other indispensable articles. When these were done, they made a smaller boat, and presented it to the Eskimo. It would aid them in getting eggs and young birds about the shore. 
clear water did not reach Lifeboat Cove until the last of May. On its appearance in the immediate vicinity, the waiting explorers put everything in readiness for their departure. The boats were laden, and each man assigned his place. Bags were made of the canvas sails in which to carry the provisions. What remained of the Polaris was given to the Eskimo chief, we guessed to our friend Kalutuna, as an acknowledgment of favors received. On the 3rd of June, in fine spirits and good health, the explorers launched their boats and sailed southward. At first the boats leaked badly, but they sailed and rowed easily and proved very serviceable. It was continuous day and the weather favorable. Seals could be had for the pains of hunting them, and the sea-fowl were so plenty that ten were at times brought down at a shot. On the downward trip all localities were touched, such as Etah, Haklut Island, and Northumberland Island. The average amount of Arctic storms were encountered. The drift ice behaved in its usual manner, though not as badly as it has been known to do. The little crafts had their hairbreadth escapes, and were battered not a little. Every night, when the toils of the day were over, the boats were drawn upon the floe, everything taken out, and the only hot meal of the day was prepared. Each boat carried pieces of rope from the Polaris and a can of oil. With these, a fire was made in the bottom of an iron pot. Over this fire they made their steaming pots of tea. The party halted a while at Fitzclarence Rock in Booth Bay, about sixteen miles south of the Cape Parry, and within sight of the high, bleak plain on which Dr. Hayes' boat party spent their fearful winter. On the tenth day of their voyaging they had reached Cape York. In comparison to Dr. Kane's trip over the same waters, theirs was a summer holiday excursion. But Melville Bay was now before them, with its defiant bergs, hummocks, currents, stormy winds, and blinding snows, a horrid crew. No wonder that the fear prevailed among them, that if not rescued they could never reach any settlement. Chester, however, said, We can and will. But the rescuers were not afar off. For another ten days they were made to feel that their battle for life was to be a hard-fought one. On the twenty-third they saw, away in the distance, what appeared to be a whaler. Could it be? They dared scarcely trust their eyes, for the object was ten miles away. Yes, it was a steamer, and beset too, so she could not get away. New courage was inspired, and they toiled on. But for this timely spur to their zeal, they would have lost heart, for one of the boats in being lifted over the hummocks was badly stowed, and their provisions were giving out, though they had calculated that they had two months' supply. Soon after they saw the steamer, they were seen by the watch from the masthead. They were taken for Eskimo, but a sharp lookout was kept upon their movement, which soon showed them to be white men. Signals of recognition were immediately given, and eighteen picked men were sent to their relief. Seeing this, Captain Buddington sent forward two men, and the rescuers soon met and returned with them. With even this addition to their strength, it took six hours to drag the boats, the twelve miles, which intervened between them and the whaler. They were received with a kind-hearted welcome by the noble Scotchman, Captain Allen, 
of the Ravenscraig of Dundee. Their toils were over, and their safety ensured. We will return to those on the flow. End of chapter 42